you know, in a way, of course, the the Shell decision was was narrowly focused on, on a particular company in in a particular place. But I think it does have broader ramifications, both for the oil and gas industry and I think for industry more broadly, among many other things. I think it underscores the idea that for companies in this new era, that that delay is is really dangerous, and that you know not moving fast enough is is perhaps a greater risk than than moving too quickly to to address climate change. Welcome to Sustainability Leaders. I'm Michael Torrance, Chief Sustainability Officer with BMO Financial Group. On this show, we will talk with leading sustainability practitioners from the corporate investor, academic, and NGO communities to explore how this rapidly evolving field of sustainability is impacting global investment, business practices, and our world. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Hi there, my name is Melanie Foyle, and I'm a director in the Responsible Investment Team at BMO Global Asset Management. I'm pleased to have Andrew Logan with us here today, Senior Director, Oil and Gas at Ceres, to discuss some of the recent developments in the oil and gas sector globally with regards to certain players and outcomes that we've seen at the end of proxy voting season. So Andrew, thanks for being with us today. I'd love to dive in, given that you have a key role with one of the largest investor coalitions, Climate Action 100 Plus. And I know you work on behalf of institutional investors to advocate uh, for you know, best practices with regards to environmental and climate change concerns with companies across a wide spectrum of industries. So outside of this initiative of Climate Action 100, where the goal is to bring down emissions from the largest emitters globally, where do you think the general population is with regards to environmental expectations of corporates? Do you think that they are indirectly impacting movements like this one and the recent news that we're actually here to talk about today? Great. Well, well first of all, thanks, Nalini, for, for having me on. And yes, I mean, I do think that growing public concern about environmental issues and in particular about about climate change you know, has not just indirect, but really a direct impact on, on many of the, uh, you know, the recent items that we're here to talk about today. I mean, you know, investors have to be responsible to the people whose money they're investing. For for asset owners, that's their beneficiaries. For for asset managers, it's their it's typically their asset owner clients. And so, you know, as we've seen, growing public concern and growing urgency, I would say about about climate change and, and the need to address climate change, there's been growing pressure from those from those clients and from beneficiaries, you know, on on institutional investors to do more and to do more with their portfolios to address climate change directly. Uh, you know, of course, there's also been, you know, a, a strong and a growing effort uh, focused on divestment, certainly here in the US, but I know also in Canada and 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 in Europe. And, you know, certainly for investors who don't want to divest or, or don't see the the value of divestment, it becomes more important to show that that engagement has teeth and, and that there is real real progress to be had from engaging companies and, and using your ownership you know, in, in a positive way. So I think all of that, you know, sort of combined has, has created the moment we're in now, which is, you know, really made 
made for maximum momentum when it comes to moving corporates on on climate change. And you know, I mean, and, and the corporates, you know, obviously are, are made up of, of people too. You know, we saw a big announcement recently out of the oil sands in Alberta of a group of companies coming together and and committing to bring their operational emissions down to, to net zero by the middle of the century. And you know, interestingly, one of the quotes. That I read, uh, you know, was was focused not so much on the environmental benefits of of that effort, which are which are certainly quite quite profound, but the fact that it would be, you know, it made it, e- it easier for this this CEO, the CEO of 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 Meg Energy, you know, to go home and face his kids uh, at the, at the end of the day, which I thought was, you know, really a really human sort of response, and just shows that. You know these dynamics really translate from you know from public concern about an issue to you know action by CEOs and and large investors. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. Bringing up the recent news around the coalition of operators right here in Canada and the commitments that they're making, kind of together to move the needle. I think it was obviously a great step forward. I think you know there's a lot to unpack with that announcement and kind of the bilateral expectations of those corporations from the local government. But I'll digress and maybe we can save that conversation for another time. But I would agree with you that I do think that, you know, the urgency and the concerns behind the impacts of climate change are really kind of trickling down to the general population that I've been seeing more and more of it, uh, you know, make the headlines of general mainstream news outlets. And so I do think that, you know, this kind of collective action we're seeing is really what's moving the needle. So Andrew, just a few weeks ago, uh, we hit a turning point with respect to big oil and the impact investors are having on their go forward business models. Three of the major oil players were actually handed outcomes against their wishes. And by wishes, I mean, management's wishes, all related to tackling crime climate change, uh, namely Shell, Chevron, and ExxonMobil all made the headlines. Can you share with us some background on the outcomes of each of those situations and the weight that they respectively carry by way of knock-on effect on the broader industry? Sure. And I would even, you know, broaden that out a bit to include, uh, you know, a few smaller companies like, like ConocoPhillips and, and Phillips 66, which also saw, you know, very large votes against management um, on, on climate change right around the same time. So, really, you know, really a wave moving across the industry. You know, at, at, at Chevron, we saw a strong majority vote for a shareholder proposal that, that called on the company to set a, a greenhouse gas reduction target that includes its its so-called scope 3 emissions which are the emissions related to the use of its product which are which are really the bulk of of the emissions of of an oil and gas company and and which are something that that Chevron has fairly vehemently refused to to address so far you know at, at ExxonMobil we saw three board members lose their jobs in in part because of of investor perception that the company wasn't doing enough to manage the risks of of climate change which was certainly a a watershed moment and you know but Shell we saw a Dutch court you know come out with a ruling that said that the company has a legal obligation under Dutch law to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions by by 45% between now and, and 2030, which is a, a much faster pace than the company was was planning on. And so and 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 all of these uh, all of these things actually happened on on the same day, which you know I think in retrospect is is the day that everything began to change for for big oil. You know, I think we saw a series of of legal and and financial trends, all of them long in the making, 
you know, come together to send a message that that even the companies seen as leaders in this sector, like like Shell, you know, aren't doing enough given the scale and scope of of the climate challenge. You know, I think I certainly take away a message that that investors are are clearly losing patience um, and are now willing to support increasingly ambitious shareholder proposals and and even contemplate shaking up boards in the most in the most extreme cases. And you know, I think what happened. You know, on that day in May is 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 important, but I think just as important, perhaps more important, is what happens from here on out. You know, I think how how these companies and how the industry as a whole chooses to respond to what seems to me like a like a clear signal, you know, will go a long way toward determining which companies you know thrive through the coming low carbon transition, uh, and and which don't. Right. So I think the situation with Shell specifically, as you mentioned, you know, that outcome was not necessarily related to a shareholder proposal, but actually a outcome that was handed down from, you know, local courthouses. And, you know, a lot of people are wondering, is that a precedent that we expect to move the industry forward? I know there has been, um, you know, observations in, in the news that, you know, Shell plans to appeal that ruling with regards to the pace of reducing emissions in their net zero strategy. Wonder what you think about this. You know, is this similar to the era that big tobacco went through? How likely is it for there to be more top-down government intervention, internationally speaking, um, on the private sector to ensure that they do their part to meet the Paris Climate Accord? And specifically, you know, given that we're sitting here in Canada, when do we expect the ripple effect of that decision to hit organizations based here? Sure. You know, I, I think, you know, in a way, of course, the, the Shell decision was was narrowly focused on, on a particular company in, in a particular place. But I think it does have broader ramifications, both for the oil and gas industry and I think for industry more broadly. I think, you know, among many other things, I think it underscores the idea that, you know, for companies in this new era, that that delay is is really dangerous and that, um, you know, not moving fast enough is is perhaps a greater risk than than moving too quickly to to address climate change. I mean, Shell, for all its leadership, um, you know, on this issue is now going to be forced by a court you know, to, to fairly dramatically speed up the pace of, of change internally. And, you know, one might argue that if, if Shell had started this process a couple of years earlier, that, you know, they would be in a much better position to do what the court is asking. And in fact, maybe the, the court wouldn't have had to ask them to do anything um, whatsoever. And, you know, I think this decision will have important ripple effects globally and, and across a, a variety of sectors. And I think, you know, the Maybe a major takeaway for for companies is that you know that society as a whole is 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 not going to allow businesses to to take us to a future where climate change is is essentially out of control. You know we're, we're not going to head toward a a three three and a half four degree future. You know whether we'll get to one and a half degrees two degrees, perhaps harder to say. But there is you know sort of a growing global consensus that climate change is a big enough threat to to the global economy, to to the health of the planet, that it you know we we will take important steps to to bring emissions down. You know, ideally in a in in a mo- in a moderate way over over a period of time. But but if not, um, you know, then abruptly if if we need to. And so, you know, it's it's certainly in the interests of companies and and in the interests of their investors 
you know, to take steps now and, and act ahead of time so that they can avoid these, you know, fairly draconian decisions, whether from a court or from or from policymakers or from their own investors, as we saw in the case of of ExxonMobil. You know, I think legal risk is something that is maybe particularly salient in in the in the U.S. context, where you know we have a very uh, tenacious and, and creative legal bar. You know, I was reminded recently that. With the tobacco industry, it was, it was over forty years from the filing of the first lawsuit uh, against the tobacco industry alleging harm to smokers to the first um, you know, legal decision that went in in the plaintiff's favor, which is a, you know an incredibly long period of time to maintain legal momentum, and yet yet you know the the legal bar was willing uh, and able to do that. It was just a matter of finding the approach that that worked, and I think you know compared to that, you know, climate liability is sort of in the the second or third inning of a, of, of a nine inning game, and and again, I think companies should not underestimate the the tenacity and, and creativity of of lawyers, um, and again, better get out ahead of the problem than wait for uh, for lawyers to find you know the, the right way to bring a suit in in court. Right. No, I think that those are all fair observations, and you know, from an investor's perspective, I think you know the expectations are warranted, you know, thinking about the resiliency of portfolios over the long term. But, you know, from the corporate perspective, I think there's a lot of nuance that goes into these kind of sweeping expectations. And so when we think about uh, some of these outcomes that happened at the end of May on these kind of larger players in this space and where they're situated, right? We know Shell is situated in, in Europe, in, in, in the Netherlands, uh, where they have a little bit more of a progressive agenda with regards to sustainability than necessarily other regions around the world, like here in, in North America, in the US or Canada. So I wondered, you know, your view on the knock-on effect of these types of outcomes on the big oil players vis-a-vis the mid-tier to smaller regional players in regions like Canada and the U.S. Like, is it realistic to expect some of these smaller organizations to make the same type of commitments on net zero? And if so, you know, how should investors tackle uh, regional nuances like with what we see in Canada, where the economy is largely dependent on the energy sector? Yeah, it's a really critical question, and and I think you know you, one could probably argue that that investors have focused too much on, on the really biggest um, you know global oil companies, who you know big as they are, you know still represent a minority of of the industry. And I think a, a key takeaway for me is is simply that every company you know in this sector, and really in in you know, almost any sector, needs to have a plan for managing climate risk. But they don't all need to be the same plan, and in fact, you know, it, they probably shouldn't be the same plan. You know, a mid-sized ENP in in Saskatchewan, you know, doesn't need to have the same approach as as a Shell or a BP, and actually probably shouldn't have that same approach. You know, they are very different companies. Uh, they have very different core competencies and 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 resources to bring to bear, and and frankly, different roles to play in in the in the low carbon transition. You know, all, all I would say is that is that every company. At the end of the day, you know, does need to figure out how it's going to prosper in, in a world that is headed toward toward net zero, and that's you know that's particularly important in places like like Alberta or, or Texas, where the economy is so dependent on on energy production, and, and where you know a failure to plan for an orderly transition 
could lead to real economic dislocation. And you know, I think this industry still has time to to plan for and, and to make a transition. It, it isn't the coal sector, it, but you know, that time is not limitless. It it really needs to to act to act now. So. You know, that's a long way of saying that I think you know investors shouldn't have the same expectations for for smaller companies or, or companies with a more regional focus, but that doesn't let them off the hook either. And I think one of the real gaps right now in the energy sector is we don't have great examples to point to, though that is maybe changing with with recent events of of you know companies, particularly you know independent EMPs, who have set out a you know really comprehensive and holistic approach to to managing the the low carbon transition. You know, it may not be net zero, it may not be focused on on scope 3 emissions, but I think there are approaches that you know, that 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 fit with the realities of that business um, that ultimately are, are about making those businesses, you know, more financially sustainable over a longer period of of time. Yeah, I think that's actually a really interesting point you make. Is just really the runway that you know, different shapes and sizes of these organizations actually have when it comes to their performance over the long term, right? Uh, like you said, you know, there are some that can be paving the way because of the scrutiny or the magnifying glass that they're under, globally speaking, like the big oil players we're talking about today. But as you mentioned, you know, the regional smaller players um, obviously have different considerations to weigh. And I think for them, Inaction is probably going to be more detrimental to their future prosperity than to just the advocacy of, you know, the general population and investors like ourselves. So um, I, I definitely agree with that perspective. Yeah, and I think it also underscores the the potential benefits of 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 collective action from some of these small players, right? I think there is, you know, there is there is value in scale, particularly around some of the solutions like like carbon capture. So it's been encouraging to see the news out of Alberta recently, right, with the number of companies committing, both committing on their own to bring their emissions down, but then also committing to work within their own industry and, and ultimately across the industrial sectors, right, to uh, to build out a network of, of infrastructure to help capture and, and sequester CO2. It's, you know, this is going to take, uh, you know, a broad industry-wide approach. And this is not an industry that is necessarily comfortable uh, doing a lot of, of collaboration and, and cooperation. So it's going to take, you know, sort of companies being willing to be uncomfortable and, and working with you know, companies that they see as as their competitors, but ultimately toward a you know a common goal of, exactly. of making the industry viable for for longer. No, I really like that kind of scale and efficiency reasoning to that announcement that we heard in Alberta. I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, and and now that you mentioned you know cap carbon capture, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the U.S. oil majors. I know. They are heavily betting on carbon capture and storage technologies. Uh, so I'd love to hear from your perspective where you see innovation happening right now and what type of investments are oil and gas companies making in different types of energy to diversify? Are there any particularly interesting innovative developments that we should be aware of? Yeah, so it's it's an interesting picture, right? And I think, I mean, to me... Part of what is so interesting about the sort of current landscape in the oil and gas sector is how different the approaches are of of the large oil and gas companies. You know, even within you know the peer group of of IOCs. You know, if you look at what say Shell is doing versus BP versus Exxon Mobil, they are they are taking fairly 
radically different approaches to to the same problem, right? And you know, BP is really focused on on building scale in in clean energy and ultimately being a generator of of electrons, which is certainly a new a new business for it. And there's lots of discussion around whether that's something you know a company with BP's background is is good at. You know, Shell is really focused more on you know leveraging its customer relationships and ultimately being a, a provider of of sort of soup to nuts energy, clean energy to to big business. And of course, ExxonMobil is really focused on on carbon capture and, and sort of what it sees as its, as its engineering capabilities. And, you know, I mean, carbon capture is an interesting problem because, you know, I think, you know, in, in a way, you know, it doesn't need innovation so much as it needs a lot of capital. And, you know, for, for capital to flow to that part of the sector, I think what we need is is the right regulatory framework, which we're beginning to get in the U.S. and 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 elsewhere. Uh, but I think we still have a long way to go. You know, I think on, on carbon capture in particular, where the innovation is happening and where it needs to happen is really on you know the sort of separation aspect of 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 carbon capture. I think the the sequestration part we we have down pretty well. Like you know, oil companies are really good at at managing reservoirs and and injecting you know, fluids and gases and, and keeping them where they where they belong. You know, the the, the engineering and, and chemical challenge is, is how do you how do you take a, a diffuse stream of of CO2 and and you know concentrate it in a way that is is economically viable uh, that you can then put into a pipe and uh, and send somewhere to store underground. So we are seeing some interesting kind of movement on on that side of things, on on the chemistry, I would say, of of carbon separation and, and capture, but I think still a long way to go for for CCS to be, you know, a really big wedge in in the low carbon transition. Um, and, and that I think to me is the big question with carbon capture is, is how big of a of a piece of the solution will it be? I think for for companies like Exxon, it really has to be a big wedge uh, because they're depending on it being successful to to sort of let the rest of their business uh, continue to to flourish. I think the only the only future in which Oil and gas still have a large role to play as a future where we're able to uh, to capture and sequester a lot of their a lot of their emissions. Great. So if we could turn back to you know just in general shareholder proposals, proxy voting season, in tracking you know these proposals brought forth by investors to corporates at their AGMs related to environmental issues. We did see a spike in 2021 with regards to the number that actually garnered positive outcomes. Is this a trend that we can expect to continue? And should companies across these sectors expect more demand for information related to environmental topics? Yeah, you know, shareholder proposals in a way represent a failure of the of the engagement process you know the goal of investors at least most investors is not to have to file these proposals in the first place and if they are filed you know the aim is to is to reach an agreement with with the company involved before the proposal has to go to a vote so you know while i'm quite certain that we'll see continued demand for disclosure and for improved disclosure on on environmental and also on social issues and also increased interest in 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 target setting on issues like climate change it doesn't necessarily mean that we'll see more votes in fact i hope we, we see fewer votes in the future because companies are willing to to set these targets and improve their disclosure you know voluntarily i, I think one clear message for companies from this year's proxy season is that investors 
really want to see greater ambition, you know, on climate change in particular. You know, the proposals that got majority votes this year were much more ambitious in what they asked than proposals that we've seen in the past. You know, historically, uh, shareholder proposals on environmental issues have have only focused on on disclosure. Whereas this year, they 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 actually asked companies to set targets, and and those proposals, you know, asking for targets, got majority support at, at a number of, of companies. So, you know, I think we are really seeing that uh, investors are raising the bar for what they want companies to do, and and they'll provide majority support to proposals uh, that ask you as as a corporation to do more. And and ultimately, as as we saw at at Exxon Mobil. You know, they are willing to hold the board accountable if, if companies refuse to, uh, to engage. Yeah, I find that so fascinating that the year in which we see the most positive outcomes related to shareholder proposals brought forth on environmental issues is also the year in which you say that they were more ambitious, ambitious and progressive versus you know, disclosure, which in the past have not necessarily garnered the same amount of support. I find that really interesting. Yeah, and I think it's also, you know, it also flows from the fact that, um, you know, that the proposals filed asking for disclosure didn't in the end, I don't think, achieved the impact that investors were hoping for. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I think investors filed a lot of proposals focused on disclosure because that was what they thought would get good votes. And they thought that improved disclosure would lead to, to action by companies, which is certainly true in some cases, but not not true universally. And so I think, you know, investors have have run out of patience and are now just asking for what they think is needed, which which in this case is is targets. Absolutely. No, I think that's that's a trend um, you know, that'd be interested to follow on a go-forward basis. So um, switching gears to you know boards in general, from your experience and looking at you know what happened with Exxon situation that you described earlier. You know, how prepared are these boards in general, not just Exxon's, to get to net zero? Do the directors have the right competencies needed to make these kind of business shifts that we want to see to get us to a place of of net zero and, and alignment with the Paris Climate Accord? Yeah, I mean the the success of the effort at Exxon this year is is really shining a light on on the skills and and competencies that a board needs to have if it's going to be positioned to help management navigate the the low carbon transition. And I think what's interesting, you know, as we see sort of conversations following the Exxon vote is that you know what investors are looking for is not really a board with climate expertise per se. You know, they're not looking to have a scientist on on every board. It's really about making sure that boards have, you know, at the collective level, the experiences and, and expertise that will help prepare a company for for a different kind of future. You know, at Exxon, those gaps were were around you know business turnaround experience. They were around clean tech and clean energy. They were around capital allocation. You know, th- those those skills and experiences will be different at other companies and in other sectors. Uh, but I think a clear through line for for all companies is that you know climate change and and the response to it is is changing the economy in profound ways and and boards need to change along with that. So, you know, I think, you know, by and large boards are probably not prepared at this point for helping their their companies get to net zero. But that's because the world is changing quickly. And so I, I think we're going to see a lot of 
of interest from investors in in having conversations with nominating committees, not necessarily looking to run, you know, activist slates because that's, you know, that's <laughs> that's a lot of work and a lot of money and and you know brings an adversarial, you know, tone to a relationship that may not be ultimately, you know, constructive. But I think there will be much more interest from investors in putting forward names of of qualified directors who might bring some of these skills and fill some of these gaps at a, at a wide range of of companies. Yeah, and I think I think it's a good thing, right? I think it's a good thing for corporates as well to be aware at, you know, the pool of talent that is out there in terms of filling these gaps on their board and trying to, like you said, get ahead of some of these expectations that are going to become table stakes in the near future. Yes. I mean I think it's you know, it's 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 interesting. You know, one of the real impacts of the Exxon campaign this year was to show that there are, you know, extremely well qualified people out there in the corporate world who have, you know, impeccable skills as directors and also bring, you know, real skills around around the low carbon transition and they're willing to serve on on board. So, um, you know, I think if, if companies start looking around, they're going to find that there are lots of people like this, you know, available to serve and, and hopefully we'll see more of them joining, you know, boards at some of these, these companies. Absolutely. Uh, so one last question for you, you know, we've talked a lot about the, you know, risks uh, to oil and gas companies related to climate change and, you know, how their practices are mitigating those risks for not only their investors, but for society as a whole. I think, you know, the flip side to, you know, climate change action is expectations around, you know, creating a just transition. And I understand that, you know, Climate Action 100 Plus, the initiative that we mentioned earlier on, their benchmark has added you know, this just transition characteristic as one of their future KPIs. And so I wanted to just see what your view was with regards to fitting in the concerns around the social impacts to local communities and and employees in these sectors. Yes. No, I think just transition is an area that has not gotten nearly as much attention as it deserves from from investors and 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 from companies as well. And, you know, the the low carbon transition is going to bring a lot of change and disruption and some of it will be positive and welcome, you know, new jobs created, new industries created. But a lot of it will be, you know, will will hurt real people in in real places. You know, you look at a company like like Shell that is going to go in the in the span of a decade from having, you know, 50 some refineries to having six. And some of those refineries it will sell to other operators and and they'll keep going, but many of them it's going to close. And that has huge implications, you know, for those workers, but also for the communities that those facilities reside in. And, you know, I think that 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 issue has not gotten a lot of attention. People like to focus understandably on on the positive story, on on the opportunities. But, you know, we can't leave people and we can't leave communities behind, you know, as we're as we're pushing to to remake, you know, companies and sectors and the economy as a whole. So, you know, certainly there's a role for government, you know, in this in this process. And we need, you know, better support and better safety nets for workers and, and for communities. But I think, you know, companies and investors have obligations as well, you know, to bring their employees along with them on this journey and, and hopefully to bring the communities, you know, that they operate in along um, a, as well. And so, it, you know, we're going to be building these expectations into how we engage as, as Climate Action 100 going forward and how we score companies you know, on their on their progress. That's so great to hear. It's it's so great to see it fit into a model like what Climate Action One Hundred has developed. Because 
we need to have some balance with regards to this entire transition and what it means for all stakeholders. So, so thank you for that. You know, I'm at the end of, of this conversation by way of questions. Um, I don't know if you had any last thoughts or comments, but I really appreciate you taking the time to discuss some of these latest developments with me. Yeah, no, I mean, thank you for having me. It's been a really thoughtful and, and interesting conversation. And so, no, I, I, there's nothing else I would I would bring up. I mean, it's it's an endlessly interesting topic, at least to me. So I'm <laughs> glad you're focusing on it. Absolutely. Well, with that, thanks again for your time today. And uh, to our audience, I, I hope you learned a little bit about the recent developments and, you know, the knock-on effects to the industry at large. Thanks for listening to Sustainability Leaders. This podcast is presented by BMO Financial Group. To access all the resources we discussed in today's episode and to see our other podcasts, visit us at bmo.com forward slash sustainability leaders. You can listen and subscribe free to our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider, and we'll greatly appreciate a rating and review and any feedback that you might have. Our show and resources are produced with support from BMO's marketing team and Puddle Creative. Until next time, I'm Michael Torrance. Have a great week. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. This is not intended to serve as a complete analysis of every material fact regarding any company, industry, strategy, or security. This presentation may contain forward-looking statements. Investors are cautioned not to place undue reliance on such statements as actual results could vary. This presentation is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not intended as an endorsement of any specific investment product or service. Individual investors should consult with an investment, tax, and or legal professional about their personal situation. Past performance is not indicative of future results.